Good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessings you've given us, the truth about, about who you are is revealed by Jesus, the way you run your universe in truth and love and freedom. We pray that your angels will dwell with us this morning, that our hearts will be filled with your spirit, that we can explore and understand and experience your character more fully today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number 10 in the quarterly, The Christian Life, entitled Discipleship. And if someone would read uh, the memory text for us, please. This is to be my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. How is it to the Father's glory that we bear much fruit? Have you thought about that before? It's to the Father's glory that we bear much fruit. Because it shows what he does within us that changes us and makes us capable of bearing fruit. In whose image were we made? God. And for what purpose? Was there a purpose in our original creation? To reveal his government, his character. The suggestion is to be the repository of the law of love, which is a living law written in the heart of Adam and Eve. Why was that necessary? Because there was a war in heaven over whether God was love or whether God was truthful. Why did Satan target Adam and Eve? I mean, there was, there was lots of other intelligent life in the universe. Why did he target Earth and Adam and Eve? I think he targeted them too. Expound. For those who appreciate Mrs. White's writings, she talks of similar trees in other planets. Yes, she does. But that to me, uh, if he was restricted to the tree, and the only place he could target the human race was from the tree, then he had just as much target on someone else as he did on us. Do you think he spent his time there at the trees on other planets? Or did he spend his time here? I think he did it there too. I don't know that we're given any insight as to the timing of it. He may have succeeded on Earth first and then used Earth as an example to, to try to sway other worlds. Now, see these beings created in God's image and followed by my, my government. Mm-hmm. You should too. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't know if other we don't know if other worlds were created with the capability to reproduce after their own kind, or if they were given dominion, which uh, humans were given, uh, these are two very godlike characteristics. Yeah, and, I, and I, I'm glad you brought those out, because I think those are key, key elements. That in the context of what was happening in the universe, this, this planet was, and this creation of this planet and this species, humanity, was, was in the context of the ongoing battle. And we were created in God's image to reveal the truth about him. In some way, evidently different than other beings, lest there was no purpose for our creation in the context. And, as, and, and I think it has to do with the two things you mentioned, the ability to create beings in our image, which is a very godlike capacity. You know, you have the ability to create life. It's very godlike. And the dominion to govern was given, a world to rule over, which is very godlike as well. And the thoughts that I had was that Satan did target all the other planets. 
but the mechanism through which he wanted to get them was by co-opting Adam and Eve and having Adam and Eve misrepresent God. Because this was a lesson book. And it says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, 9, that the that earth and, and we are put on as display as a lesson book, a theater unto angels and to men. And, and, and the onlooking universe is looking here at this theater, this lesson book. And what did they learn when Adam and Eve sinned? What did Adam do immediately after his sin? First thing, who did he try to protect as soon as he sinned? Who was he willing to sacrifice? Eve. And if he's in God's image, and, and God has made the big, big presentation, let us make man in our image, and the rest of the universe is going, that's what God is like, well, he's willing to sacrifice others to protect himself. You see the, you see the, the deal here now. And so Lucifer got Adam and Eve to sin so he could then replace God's image in man with Satan's image in man. And the universe would be confused. This is one of the reasons why Christ came, to fix that problem. And to accurately reveal the truth, and we're going to get into that a little bit later in the lesson, but he said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, the Father and I are one. So, I like what, what Linda said a moment ago. We're asking this question, how is it that, that bearing fruit brings glory to God? If someone has terminal cancer, spread, metastasized throughout the body, and they're dying, and a doctor gives them a treatment, one, one time, one pill, and the cancer is completely gone, remits. Who gets the glory from that? The patient that was dying or the doctor that cured them? You see, that's us. You see, if, 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 if God's methods, principles, his power, his spirit works in us to transform us and cure us and heal us and, tra- and regenerate us to be like Christ. Who gets the glory for that? Yeah, we don't get the glory. We're sick and dying. We're, we're terminal. All our righteousness, as it says, is filthy rags. So let's read John, and that, with that thought in mind, let's read John 14, 9 through 14. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not known me? Come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe me because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Did you notice, what did Jesus tell Philip that Jesus was, was doing or revealing? Revealing his Father. And those who trust Jesus, according to Jesus here, are going to do what? Did you notice how he says that? Uh, What I'm doing, that's what you're going to do, but you're going to do even more. He says, greater things than I, you're going to do. Now, what greater thing than Christ did are you going to do? Christ. Let somebody else think about it for a minute. (laughs) <laughs> Let them think about it for a minute, Russell. <clears throat> Do you notice that's what Christ said? Did I misread it? Or did, he, did Christ say that? We had the testimony of the, 
changed life of a healed character that we can share with other sick and dying sinners. Did Christ in his humanity reveal what a perfect sinless life, a perfect sinless human life looks like? And what God designed it to look like? He, he did that. Did Jesus in his life show what God's power does in a life that has been habituated in sin, a character that has been warped by, by selfishness and, and shortcoming, and how that, that God's methods, principles, spirit, working in a, in a broken and sinful life, fully heals, transforms, and restores that sinful life back to godliness. Did, did Christ's life show that? That's what you and I get to have the privilege of participating in. We get to be those, those beings who are sick in sin, that get to be transformed by God's working in our hearts and minds, and that shows something of God's methods and principles and nature and character that Christ's life didn't show because Christ was never warped by sin. Does that make sense to everyone? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and then it says in here, Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, now I will do it for you. What does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? You know what does it mean, the little tag thing at the end of every prayer we do? In Jesus' name. Amen. You notice how we've gotten to the habit of praying that. I mean, do you hardly ever hear a prayer that doesn't end in Jesus' name? Amen. Then why do we say that? Why do we say in Jesus' name? Amen. Because of this promise right here. Isn't that why we do it? Now, when we put that little tag on the end, is that what it means to pray in Jesus' name? To pray in harmony with the character and the ways of God. That, we're, that we have this mindset, we're in harmony with God himself. In, in Bible times, what did the name represent or mean? character. So he could say, if you ask anything in my character, that I will do for you. You see? Well, that means we are converted, we're transformed. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. When we pray in harmony with his character, then he will do it. Because then we're having the same motives, the same desires, the same passion. And what was Christ's passion in this prayer? To glorify the Father, to reveal the Father. By the way, this goes right to the last day message. What's the remnant church? They have what? The testimony of? Yes. And what what did Jesus testify about? What was his testimony? If you see me, you've seen the Father. It's the testimony of the, the character of the Father of love. That's what the testimony of Jesus is. If we want to be that final day people... We have to be in harmony with his character and reveal the character of the Father in our lives. Isn't that true? Yeah. Well, this is out of a book called Desire of Ages, page 668. It says, to pray in Christ's name means much. It means that we are to accept his character, manifest his spirit, and work his works. The Savior's promise is given on condition. If you love me, he says, keep my commandments. He's, he saves men not in sin, but from sin. And those who love him will show their love by obedience. Is that confusing or is that sensible? How many would like to be saved, in other words, get eternal life in sin? How many would like that? Do you understand the difference between being saved from sin and being saved in sin? There's a lot of Christianity promoting the idea that we'll be saved in sin. I know. How is that promoted? How is the idea promoted that we're saved in sin? Because 
that Christ's righteousness is a robe that wraps around the outside of us, but we are really who we are still inside. Okay, the candy-coated rotten apple theory. <laughs> Take a rotten apple, coat it in candy. It looks really pretty on the outside, but it's still rotten to the core. The idea that when we accept Jesus, he covers us with the rope of righteousness. Our hearts are not changed. We're still sinful. We're still wicked and, and you know, selfish. But we've accepted his payment, and then that covers us legally, and then the Father can't see us anymore. So we're saved in sin. How else is it taught? We're saved from punishment. Saved from the punishment. Jesus paid our penalty. Got pardoned, stamped by the books of, of heaven. No change of heart has happened. We've just accepted the legal payment. How about this one, which is very commonly taught? We'll never quit sinning. We'll sin for the rest of our lives. That's why we need legal forgiveness, because we can't have character transformation. We can't be free from the power of the domination of sin in our lives. No victory here and now. No life of love here and now. We're going to continue to live in sin and selfishness and sin right up to the day Jesus comes. That's closely related to once saved, always saved, too, isn't it? What do you think about what I just said? Once saved, always saved is another way of doing it. That's the legal part. I've been legally saved, so now it doesn't matter what I do from this point on. Um, I was already saved in, in, in boot camp when I was 19. Uh, you know, I accepted Jesus as my Savior, and it doesn't matter if I sell drugs or run a prostitution ring or anything else because I've been saved and, and I can't be lost now. Yeah, that's exactly right. So what is sin? What is sin? Transgression of the law. Transgression of the law said right here. What law? Law of love. Law of love. And so what does the transgression of the law of love look like? Selfishness. Selfishness, fear, and selfishness. And so if you read what it says in the scriptures, talking about hearts that come to love God and love other people more. It's living the life of love. In Revelation 12, describing those ready to meet Jesus when he comes, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Think that Don't love your life so much as to shrink from death. If I'm not shrinking from death, then I'm not afraid. I'm not worried about me anymore. I've died to, to self. I'm, I'm willing to give my life. Greater love is no man than he give his life for a friend, and we ought to uh, give our lives for each other. In the back, Jonathan, yes. Are you saying that we are saved... After our characters are perfected? I'm saying that salvation is the process of transforming our characters. It's an ongoing process of healing. So, are we saved? We're saved all during, during that process? Well, let's go on to the very next things I have here and see if this doesn't answer your question. Um, in, in the first paragraph, it talks about the fact that perfect knowledge of the doctrines are not needed for our salvation. But what is salvation? Salvation comes from the root word salvo, from which we get salve, like I salve, anointment that, that heals, or salvage. If you salvage something, you take something that's broken and you fix it, make it new. Okay. Does anybody know the, what the English word, there's an English word today that actually is the word salvo. Anybody know what that is? What do we use it for if you hear the word salvo in English say what it means? Artillery barrage. Did you hear? It's an artillery barrage. That's exactly right. If you're out in the military, you call in for a, you know, you need cover from the you call in for a salvo of artillery. It's a, it's a, it's a firing of, of guns all at the same time. Well, how does that, if that's the root word for salve and salvation, how does that fit in? It's very interesting if you look at the entomology of the word. The, the word goes back to the, to the Latin, of course. 
And in, in Latin, there was salva, which in Italian was salu. Are you getting any words that could connect to that? Salute. Salute. Salutation. Are you hearing the words? Well, those are all connected. They're at the same root. And in uh, Rome, when you would see somebody, you would say salve or salva, which would mean be in good health, be healthy. It was a way to give a salutation, a hello, a greeting, a salute. You would, you would honor somebody when you see them by saying, be healthy, be in good health. It's still said in Latin America, salute. Salute, in, be in good health, salute. Okay? Well, that got transitioned in to give a salutation to a dignitary when they were arriving. They would give a 21-gun salute. Okay? A 21-gun salute. Be in good health. That's what it meant. And then... It just transitioned because the 21-gun salute was a way to honor somebody and say, of dignitary, be healthy, be in good health. It just became associated with the firing of the guns, and so it transitioned over to calling a firing, a barrage of guns, salvo. But it actually still means be in good health, be healthy. If you're pinned down by enemy fire and you're calling in a salvo on the enemy position, it seems like salvation to you. That's an interesting point. I don't think that was the original etymology, but I can see. But it doesn't seem like salvation to the other guy. <laughs> so, so the the meaning of salvation. Back to the question: healing, recreation, regeneration. If you're sick and dying of a terminal disease, and the physician has a remedy that will cure you, do you have to understand how the remedy was developed in order to benefit from taking it? Do you have to understand how the remedy works physiologically in your system to cure you in order to benefit from taking it? No. Do you have to trust the doctor? Yes. And follow his prescription? Trust him and follow him, right? Yes. You see, and as soon as you take the first dose, have you left the path of death and entered the path of life? See, that's the conversion experience. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we've taken the first dose that remedies us, that heals us. We are no longer in the path of death. We're now on the path of life. Now, as long as we trust the physician, the outcome is guaranteed. And it's a transforming, regenerating, healing process. Yes? made a good point here. He said, you know, in intensive care, when you're out, people are giving you treatment to help you whether you know it or not. And spiritually, there is a precedent for that. In that even before we know we need help, God is still already beginning to intervene to save us if, and to the point where we come to a realization that's what he's trying to do. He's always trying to put healing remedy in if we won't resist, and we may not even know what that feature is in our life. There's no question. Yeah, the Holy Spirit's working in our hearts long before we come to the point of accepting it. No question. Yes. Also, I think it's good to keep in mind that the process of healing is taking place, and it is a process. First, the corn or the blade, and then the corn, you know, and then you have the full ear of corn. And you're on that path of healing and restoration, even if you're not at the end point of it. But that doesn't mean salvation hasn't occurred until you get to the end point. That's right. You're being healed. That's right. That's right. As long as you're in that, that's it's, yes. Do we ever reach an end point? We don't even reach an end point in development and maturity and growth and knowledge and experience. God's infinite. We're finite. We'll always be growing throughout eternity. But I do think we reach an end point of love overcoming selfishness, where we have the selfishness and the fear rooted out of the heart, and we are really operating like the angels in heaven, the unfallen beings, on truly other-centered love. They're still growing in their knowledge and understanding and maturity and so forth, but they don't have any propensities anymore towards self-centeredness and fear. They've died. Uh, I mean, they didn't have to, but, but I guess be, examples would be like Enoch. 
and Moses and Elijah, I think they are still growing in heaven in their understanding and their, and their perspective and their insights and their wisdom. They're still growing. But they don't have that carnal nature we struggle with anymore. Isn't that the definition of being sealed? Yes, the sealing. Uh, well, not, not quite, because I think the sealing, we are we're, we're at that point, but then there comes a deliverance from the, mor- the mortal to the immortal to the corruption to the incorruption. But the character part, yes, that's exactly the sealing. So settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, that we cannot be shaken out of it. Job would be an example of that in the Scripture. Job was perfect and righteous in all his ways. No one on the earth like him. And look at the tribulation he went through. But he was never shaken out of his trust in God. He was never shaken to start acting selfishly, to try to protect himself and to, to go out and do evil to others to get his wealth back or whatever it was. He was never shaken in that direction to cheat or lie or those types of things. And so he was so settled, his character, regardless of the tribulation, couldn't be shaken. That's a good point. If all we have to do is truly trust God and follow his prescription, if that's the key to salvation, then if you were Satan, where would you focus your energies to keep people from experiencing salvation? If the key is coming to trust God and accept his remedy, where would you focus your energies if you're Satan? Trust. On? By getting by telling lies about the heavenly physician so that we won't trust him. Isn't that the focus? To misrepresent him. So, while we don't have to know all the doctrines in order to be saved correctly, do doctrines impact your ability to trust or not trust God? Which doctrines have you believed that have particularly helped you trust God? Which doctrines have you heard that have made it hard for you to trust God? Well, one doctrine in particular that has been a struggle for me is the Ten Commandments doctrine. That we have to keep the Ten Commandments as it's written. And not really understanding that that's not what God was trying to portray. He was trying to, to define what love was. Ah. Uh-huh. Do you all understand the point? When you focus on the Ten Commandments, Christianity and religion becomes behavioral. It's a whole system of works that we need to achieve and work toward. How did the Ten Commandments start out? Anybody? I am the God who delivered you from Egypt. That's how they start out. Not, thou shalt have no other gods before me. We always skip that first part. I am the one who delivered you. That's how they start. And the point here is, imagine you have, anybody old enough to remember, they used to have tuberculosis hospitals. And when you had tuberculosis in the day, you would have to be quarantined in the hospital. You couldn't get out of the hospital until you were well or dead. You could leave then, too. Okay? But that's the only way you got out, well or dead. And imagine on the wall, they have a list of things that you have to achieve before you get out. No more fever, no more cough, no more spitting up blood, no more chills, no more nausea and vomiting. All that stuff has to be gone before you can leave. And you could even write it. Thou shalt not have fever. Thou shalt not have chills. Thou shalt not spit up blood. Thou shalt not do any of this stuff before you can leave. Now imagine you saw that on the wall, and the physician comes by, because you went out. I mean, who wants to stay in the hospital, right? And so the physician comes by, and you're sick. You're miserable. But you know you've got a high fever, so you put a little ice in your mouth, so that when they take your temperature, it won't look like you have fever. And the physician says, how are you doing today? And you've got these terrible cough, but you go, I'm fine. And you're working really hard, working really hard not to look sick. Is that really the best approach to the physician and doctor patient interaction there? No. Uh, and when you instead say to the physician, I'm really sick, I got a terrible cough, please, and the physician has a remedy that will cure you, please provide me the remedy. I want to get well. And the physician says, Look, see that thing on the wall? That's not something you have to work to. 
that's a promise to you of what you're going to look like. If you trust me and you take my prescription, I promise you won't have any more cough. You won't have any more fever. You won't have any more blood spitting up. This is how you're going to look. If you trust me and take my remedy, that's how you're going to look. That's what the Ten Commandments are. It's a promise to us of what we're going to look like when the Holy Spirit, because what's the new covenant? I will write my law where? Who's doing the writing? Yeah, it doesn't say that you're going to work really hard and establish the law in your heart. It's going to, we're going to trust God and the Spirit's going to write the law in our heart. And that's what we're going to look like. And so you're right. When we twist the doctrine, doctrine backwards, it becomes an oppression to us. We see it for what it is, a diagnostic instrument to diagnose we're sick. So we'll go, boy, I can never get myself well. Lord, heal me. Then we'll look like that. That's, that's a great one. The other point is that the lesson correctly states that to be a, a disciple, we have to be a lifelong learner, a lifelong learner. Because, again, as I said a moment ago, God is infinite, we're finite. How big is that gap? <laughs> infinite, right? Okay? It's an infinite gap. So will there ever come a time, if we're lovers of truth, if we want to know God, will there ever come a time we're not growing in our knowledge and experience and understanding of God? Or will there always be more to learn? So if that's the truth... Tell me, what new spiritual truth has our church discovered in the last 100 years? None. You notice we've died. We're stagnant. We're not growing in the truth. We're not advancing in the truth. One of the founders of our church said that truth is unfolding. It's always unfolding. And there's truth for this time. But the truth that we preach primarily as an organization is over 100 years old. It's time we advance in the truth, march forward in the truth. He's infinite. There's lots to go. What we should never, and I tell people, don't ever arrive at the truth. See, if you arrive, I've got it. It's no more to learn now. Shut down the mind. No more growth. We start dying. No, we never arrive. We're always marching forward in the truth. And with that in mind, there is that, that I think we could continue to, to study and expand and unfold why Christ had to die. The heavenly sanctuary. Christ our mediator. The heavenly record books. The final end of sin and sinners. And much more needs further unfolding. We're not going to have time to do all those today. But uh, I leave that with you to go and, and push the envelope. Ask questions. Explore. Okay, Sunday's lesson, it talks about followers and leaders. Followers and leaders. What type of leadership styles can you name off, off the top of your head? Authoritarian. authoritarian leadership was the number one of mine. Uh, autocratic, authoritarian, dictatorial type leadership. Somebody who's in control and they, and they, of course, just direct everybody. Kind of like a master-slave relationship. It doesn't have to be that punitive. It can be you know, a little less so. But still, somebody's in charge and they give orders and people below them, the subordinates, follow the orders. Any others? Charismatic. charismatic, absolutely. Uh, charismatic leadership. This is an energy, emotional-based leadership where the leader is continually interjecting huge amounts of uh, and doses of affirmation and, and energy into the subordinates to keep them all stirred up. Other types. Servant leader. I like that one. Often not recognized as a leader within the group, but this person leads by meeting the needs of its members. Servant leader. I've got several on here. Participant or democratic, collaborative, gets input from subordinates. As I, as I go through these, tell me uh, really quick, which ones do you see most representative of God? Authoritarian, autocratic? You see that representative of God? God works this way? I see some yeses, I see some noes. Okay. Participant or de democratic, where, where the group together basically decides and... How about bureaucratic, a rigid, by-the-book, rules-oriented approach, pressuring and enforcing adherence to the rules? 
You see God doing that. Uh, we men mentioned charismatic, an energy emotion-based to try to stir up the emotions and keep people enthused. A laissez-faire type leadership, where basically the leader gives a, a, a goal to be achieved and leaves the people to figure it out on their own and do it on their own. People-oriented or relationship-oriented focuses on development and organization of the members of the team. Does God focus on the development of his people? Task-oriented focuses on the task, dictates assignments, and cares little for what happens to the people as long as the goal is, is achieved or the task is achieved. Transactional is the quid pro quo relationship, basically a contract. You do something for me and I'll give you some reward. And in that, the leader can punish by withholding the reward. This is commonly taught. Different views of Christianity have God in every one of these roles. There's the rules-oriented, the, the bureaucratic, rigid, rules-oriented approach, enforcing the rules. There is the disinterested, he lets you do it on your own. There's the, you know, the transactional where you, know, you make this covenant or contract with God. And he's going to do this, and you're going to do that. And if, he do, and if you don't do it, he's going to withhold reward from you, which means you don't get to go to heaven. Contractual. Um, transformational. Inspires the team with a shared vision of the future. And then the servant leader. And then one, and I got all these off of like a leadership website. Okay. Um, and then one I, I, I made up myself. Uh, I call loving eclectic. The loving eclectic leader, which is doing whatever is necessary in the situation or the circumstance to maximize the like, the desired outcome within the bounds of love. What type of leadership, the top three, what type, what type do you see God using? Well, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. What kind of leadership is that? Servant leadership. Sacrificial leadership. Or Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. What type of leadership? Well, why is this type of leadership, the servant leadership, the sacrificial leadership, why is that the only leadership that will ultimately work in God's government? He's a God of freedom. He is a God of freedom. Why? He, he respects our individuality. And he absolutely does. Why? Because because that is Say that louder. That is love. Because what? Yes. Well, it's, a servant leader is others-oriented. Yes. Himself or herself. Yes. And so what? what is destroyed when you take away freedom? Love. When you take away freedom? Love. Love cannot exist in an atmosphere without freedom. So you're right. He respects our individuality. He respects our freedom. But try this, married couples in the room. Try it on your spouse. Try to take away the freedom of your spouse. Tell them where they can go, who they can talk to, what clothes they have to wear, when they have to be home, whether they're allowed to go out or not. Try, try dictating to your spouse. Take away their freedom. See what happens to love. Anybody have any doubt in this room what will happen? No. Love is destroyed when we take away freedom, when we use authoritarian measures, when we threaten and, and threaten each other in the marriage. If you don't do what I say, and there's a threat comes, does that enhance love? No. It destroys and damages love. Not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works. So love cannot be commanded, coerced, dictated. Interestingly enough, in the book Desire of Ages, page uh, 22, it says the following. The earth was dark through misapprehension of God. Of course, it says in Isaiah, darkness covered the people, gross darkness, the people. That the gloomy shadows might be lightened, that the world might be brought back to God, Satan's deceptive power was to be broken. This could not be done by force. 
The exercise of force is contrary to the principles of God's government. He desires only the service of love, and love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. Only by love is love awakened. To know God is to love him. His character must be manifest in contrast to the character of Satan. This work only one being in all the universe could do. Only he who knew the height and depth of the love of God could make it known. Upon the world's dark night, the Son of Righteousness was to rise with healing in his, in his wings. Isn't that beautiful? See, is that a different type of leadership? I mean, God is all-powerful. He clearly has the power. But if we have this idea that God uses his power to win the war, then Satan stands up and says, look, guys, I never said God wasn't powerful. Of course he's powerful. He made everything. The problem is he's not good. If he could get a little self-control, get a little hold on his wrath and anger, just not lash out and use his power to hurt us well, we could live forever in our sin because there's nothing wrong with sin. There's something wrong with God. Who must punish for sin? Have you ever heard that God has to punish for sin? You've never heard that? Every weekend. Every weekend. <laughs> <laughs> of Ages 759 says, God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easy as one cast a pebble to the earth. But he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. Recognize that. It's critical when you start studying the doctrine about what happens to the wicked in the end. What does God do to those who refuse his love in the end? If you have some idea, well, he will pour out fire from heaven and and, and punish them and, and destroy them. Try that on your spouse. I just want your love. It's all I've ever wanted. I've given you, I, I, spent, I, I, I go to work, I bring home money, I, I give you foot rubs, I, I do all this good stuff because I just love you. But if, if you don't love me back while you're sleeping, I'm going to sneak in, pour gas on you, and light you on fire. Does love grow stronger in that relationship? Well, you know, many Christians teach this is exactly what God says. I mean, he loves us so much, he sent his son to die for us, and if we won't accept that and love him back, well, in the end, he will turn on us and he'll get us. Wait a minute. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral. And truth and love are the prevailing power. Truth and love, the prevailing power. So, does the leadership style used by a leader impact the type of followers within the group? So think this through with me now. What type of followers were found in groups run with an authoritarian leader like Hitler, Stalin, Hussein? What kind of followers were found in that group? Non-thinkers. Terrified ones. Terrified ones? Non-thinkers? Okay. Yeah, the first thing. Is thinking aloud in a regime like that? No. Do such dictators permit their actions to be questioned and scrutinized? No. What do such leaders do to people who do have questions? <laughs> what kind of followers are found worshiping a God who says, do it my way or I'll torture you in hell or kill you? Do those who worship such a God like questions? No, not at all. Or do they prefer, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Do worshipers of such a God like their beliefs challenged or scrutinized or criticized? Now you can see this. There are certain organizations and religions of the world that if you question the, the prophet, they will riot on your embassy. Won't they? Mm-hmm. They respond with violence. Coercive power. Non-thinking, 
blind obedience. Does God want blind obedience? And that takes us right into Monday's lesson, which is obedience and loyalty. Monday's lesson, obedience and loyalty. What does obedience that God wants from his people look like? Is it the obedience of a well-trained dog? A non-thinking, blind obedience. Any questions or thoughts about obedience? Let's jump to Tuesday's lesson, because it's got some good stuff. Somebody read for us in the middle, rather than promising. Read that for us, rather than promising that paragraph. Rather than promising his disciples material prosperity and social status, Jesus prepared them for a different kind of reality. Following him is a costly business. Following Jesus is a costly business. Have you heard this preached? It costs to follow Jesus. I'm going to tell you that's a lie. It does not. It only feels like or appears to be costly. It's never costly. It only feels like. I have patients who are addicted to various substances, and they think it is costly to give up their addiction, to go through detox, the pain, the suffering of detox, the, the, the humiliation of acknowledging and letting people know that they have this addiction to get help. They think it's going to cost them. Now, you tell me, which costs them more? To go through the detox program and get free of that addiction or to hide it and never get free? Which, which is more costly? I have patients who are in relationships with spouses that physically abuse them and beat them and ridicule them and criticize them and dominate them and curse them. And in those relationships, they often are afraid to leave because of the cost, the loneliness, the abandonment, the fear of going by themselves, the financial, the financial insecurities of not having that person that, that is with them. Anymore. Which will cost them more, to stay in a relationship like that or to leave? I, ha- I know a doctor who recently had to fire somebody for embezzling money. The employer's husband had lost his job, and they were behind on their house payments and car payments, and so she began embezzling money from from the physician. Let's imagine for a moment that she wasn't caught. She wasn't caught, so she still has her job, and she's getting her bills paid now by embezzling this money. The lesson would suggest that if she followed Jesus and didn't embezzle the money, and she was an honest person then maybe losing her house and car, then it's, you see, it's costly to follow Jesus because she loses her house, she loses her car to be loyal and faithful. But let me ask you, which is more costly? To lose houses and cars and material substances or to embezzle and sear your conscience, warp your reason and destroy your soul? Which is more costly? It's never costly to follow Jesus. It just feels that way or can appear on the surface to the human mind that way. Why? Because we have a small, narrow, earthly view of things, and we react with our carnal natures of wanting to protect self, fear of going it alone, fear of abandonment, fear of financial ruin, fear of losing our houses, fear, 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 and these fears dominate our decision, and we think it's going to cost us something, when in truth, when we trust God and follow his methods, whatever we lose we get something better in return. You see, when we follow Christ, we always get the best. We exchange corruption for incorruption. We exchange mortal for immortality. We exchange guilt for peace, fear for love, loneliness for unity and oneness with God. This is what we get when we follow Jesus. So tell me, is it costly to follow Jesus? 
One of the things that you're good at is, is talking about the symbolisms within Christianity. And in the last paragraph on Tuesday's lesson, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cross of Discipleship, speaks about the cross, the cross that we have there. Now, as a Protestant, that might be the ultimate cross. Okay, the Catholics have Christ's suffering on the cross, always there suffering forever and ever and ever. I, if you have some comments on the uh, symbolism involved with that, I, I'd like to hear that. I think He's talking about a cross with nobody on it for, for Protestants. And in the Catholic system, the crucifix, which shows Christ on the cross. The symbolism, and this goes back to understanding the origins of the Catholic Church and the origins of Protestantism. Where do the Protestant churches come from? Catholicism. Where did the Catholic Church come from? Paganism. A lot of people think, because the Catholics want you to believe that Peter was the first pope, and there was a, this descendancy of popes down through Peter, that they came from the Apostolic Church. They didn't. The Apostolic Church went into hiding. It was the Church of the Waldenses, the Church of the Huguenots. It was the Church in hiding. It was in uh, the 5th century when um, Constantine converted to Christianity that the, uh, that the Roman Church was really uh, organized or came into power. And basically, if you were a pagan worshiping a pagan god, uh, your whole life, and one day a, a crier comes from Rome with the edict that uh, from the emperor there's only one official state religion now and all of the religions are no longer uh, uh, authorized and that one official state religion is, is Christianity. What religion are you today? You were a pagan your whole life. Today there's an edict that only, and, and those who don't uh, you know, follow the, the state religion, what happens to them? Well, they go to the arena. So what religion are you today? Christian. Christian. What do you know about Christianity? So what do you practice? But what do you label it? That's what, there you, there's the origins of the Catholic Church. Right there. That's why you have so many of the things you have in the Catholic Church. And I don't have time to go through all the, all the things that were just transitioned straight over from pagan. But the core root of paganism, the root of it, is an angry, wrathful God who has to be appeased by some sacrifice or offering from the worshiper to appease his wrath and turn away his anger so that we can have favor and grace from him again. That's the heart of Catholicism. That's why you have Jesus, Mary, and all the saints pleading to the Father because he has to be worked on. And even though the Protestant Reformation got rid of so many of the doctrinal distortions and has slowly come back to a more doctrinal truth, the heart of paganism has remained in Protestantism. And the root heart is an angry, wrathful God who has to be appeased. But we can't appease him ourselves, so what? We appease him with the blood of his son. I know what. We're, we're sinners. We're out of favor with God. He's angry with us. He's wrathful, righteously wrathful, wrathful of course. I know what we'll do to get, get back in his good graces. When he sends his son, we'll kill his son and offer him his son's blood. Then he'll be happy with us. You understand that's what Christianity teaches is by and large. We offer him the blood of his son. And now he's happy. It's paganism. And so the crosses and the crucifix, um, the reason they have him on the cross is because the physical suffering, and this is what that movie by Mel Gibson, The Passion, it was all about the physical suffering of Christ because they see that sin must be punished and Christ had to be punished most severely of all because he took our place and made our legal payment. Now we can offer that punishment and that blood to the Father, you see. So it had to be a horrible physical thing. Well, we know that physical the physical abuse Christ went through was not the severest abuse. In fact, uh, one of the founders of our church says it was hardly even felt because the psychological pain was so severe. And it was the psychological pain 
Where does sin happen? In the heart and mind. So, the crucifix is all about that physical suffering, reminding us our penalty's been paid. He took the physical suffering, and now that, that payment can be made to the Father. It's all about that, that pagan distortion infecting Christianity. And we have the same problem in our church, I want you to know. It has not been rooted out of this church yet. And we need to do our job to root it out. It's preached from pulpits all across the world in Seventh-day Adventist churches every week that, that Christ died to pay your penalty and pleads His blood to the Father on your behalf. And that's not true. What's the Bible say? For God so loved the world that He gave... Does that sound like He needed to be persuaded? No. Uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His Son but gave Him up, how will He not also with Him give us all things? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus. He is at the right hand of the Father and is also interceding for us. Understand the meaning. Hey guys, God is on your side. He loves you so much. He, he didn't even give up a son. He sent a son and he's setting you right, justifying you. But if that's not good enough, if you've got so many lies in your head about the Father, if you can't really see clearly who God is and revealed in Jesus, don't worry. Jesus is also there working and interceding on your behalf. Trust in Jesus. And then, 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. You see, the Bible is clear all through. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hebrews 1.3. Christ was the exact representation of the Father. There is no thing taught in Scripture anywhere that Jesus died to somehow persuade, convince, or work on his Father. He was the manifestation of the Father's love to mankind, achieving in mankind what was necessary for our salvation. He was the Father's thoughts made audible that we can see and hear. Yes? Basically, you just uh, said there, uh, referring to Paul, what I was going to say is that God is actually drawing us to Jesus. That's exactly right. Yes. Exactly right. And when we see Jesus, we see the Father. So think that through. Work that construct. It's so deeply woven into the thinking of most Christians. When you hear it for the first time, it'll be about three to five years before you get it rooted out of your thoughts. That's how deeply woven in this idea of the appeasement model is so deeply. And some of you know that. Can some of you shake your heads and acknowledge? Three to five years of worshiping and, and studying this before you get that other idea rooted out. It takes that long. Um, in the last paragraph on Tuesday that you mentioned, it says, Following Christ is not an easy thing to do. It inevitably will involve suffering. Just as Christ said that he must suffer, so we must suffer. Why do we suffer? Because we are broken, and we're in a healing process, and the path of healing revolves suffering. After a broken leg, Russell, um, <laughs> Russell's a physical therapist for all you that didn't know, okay? After a broken leg and you go for therapy, what does the therapy feel like initially? Heaven. Heaven. <laughs> and they're both right. They're both right. It does hurt. But it brings healing and autonomy and freedom and wellness, and eventually the pain stops. Um, after emotional trauma, the path of healing will involve pain, but it won't be destructive. It's regenerative. And we are too often duped into believing that health is determined by how we feel, rather than evaluating what's being accomplished. And so imagine that physically, you go to the physical therapist and you say, oh man, all those exercises make perfect sense to me. I understand them completely. I can see how they'll be beneficial. And I'll be glad to engage them as soon as they don't hurt. 
Imagine spiritually that we do that. I can understand these things that Christ has asked me to do. It makes sense my life would be better. And I'll be glad to do those as soon as it's no longer uncomfortable for me. There's no more, you know, the, the cross to bear. There's no more self to be sacrificed. That type thing. Well, 23rd Psalm. Listen to the 23rd Psalm. You all know it very much. I'm not going to start at the very beginning. But in the midst of it, it says, He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for... Okay, what's his name represent? Character. He leads me in the path of righteousness. Now, who's the one leading here? Okay, so get your mind around this. Okay, he's my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. He's leading me in a path that's going to restore my soul and restore righteousness in me. And he's the one leading. And the very next words are, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. All too often we think this is referring to a physical death. Notice, it doesn't say, I'm leading you in the valley of death. I'm leading you in the valley of the shadow of death. It feels like you're going to die. You might even wish you could die because it feels so bad. But it's not the valley of death. It's the valley of death to self. It's the valley that leads to righteousness. It's the valley that we must go through in that converting, transforming process. Peter went through it the night he denied his Lord. That's when he went through that valley. Do you remember the bitterness that he went through? Dying to self. So he restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his glory, his namesake. Yea, thy walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. So when all those feelings, those insecurities, that, that terrible, awful feeling, this is what happens. We, we say, Lord, I can see that you love me. You, you've died for me. You've won me to the truth about who you are. I trust you. Now, Lord, lead in my life. And very shortly, we come to a point of pain. A point where it's time to die to self. And then we pull back. We don't go there. And we go over this ground again and again and again. Because the Lord keeps wanting to lead you through the valley of the shadow of death. So that you will come out free from that fear and selfishness which dominates us. And notice when we come out the other side. The day that I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for thou art with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. A table. A table of what? The table of showbread, maybe? The table of, of spiritual nurturance. Uh, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be, be part of me. Uh, I prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with, what's the oil symbolic of? Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Our characters. This, I will write my law in your hearts and minds. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell within. We get regenerated, renewed, recreated within by the power of the Holy Spirit. I anoint, you anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Everybody said to the woman at the well, you asked for me. You would ask for the water of life. It would overflow in you to many. Our cup of love now, because the Holy Spirit's dwelling in because selfishness, we've gone through that valley, we've died to self. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. The cup of love now runs over, and we are a source of love to other people, revealing Christ. My cup runs over. I will, uh, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And guess where we dwell? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the path that the Lord wants to take us through. This path in which we we will suffer, not because God wants us to suffer, but it's the only way to free us from the fear and selfishness that dominates us. Yes? Um, In the first sentence of that last paragraph from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, there's a little note there that says, martyred by the Nazis in 1945. I'd imagine if you talk to any of the superiors in the Nazi movement, 
there would not be any notation of being martyred. He was a guy who joined the plots against to kill Hitler. He was part of the underground. He traveled frequently and talked to the enemies of the German government. So he was killed not for his religious beliefs. He was killed because of his political activities. And I think that goes also to our spectrum in that many of the trials and the suffering and the sacrifices that we go through have nothing to do with our maybe walk with God or with our etc. But it has to do with other entrapments that we have come to. Think about the worker that I told you about a minute ago, the lady whose husband lost her job and she worked at a doctor's office. She was brought to a point, a place, where she had decisions to make. She might have suffered. There might have been some difficulty. Um, was, that, was that suffering, that opportunity? Was that not an opportunity for character development? To overcome some weakness in her character fear, insecurity, selfishness, to say, you know what, I would rather lose my home and lose my car than to become a cheat and a liar and a fraud. You know, so uh, while on the surface it may not look like that it's a spiritual thing, pretty much most of our decisions do come down to that. If you look at Bonhoeffer with the Nazis, how about if when he's faced with what the Nazis are doing, he chooses to go along with them? What would happen to his character as he turns in Jews to the Nazis? So, yeah, there are political actions, but ultimately, are, are, are those of us who are following Christ, isn't there an enlightened, heavenly perspective that informs our day-to-day decisions in this world? At least it's supposed to. And I think the point that Wendell's trying to make is that sometimes we can, and my point was, something can look superficially unrelated to Christianity, but still can be. But his point is, that sometimes we make decisions that are truly unrelated to Christianity that get us in trouble that wouldn't otherwise get us in trouble. Like we go out there and we start protesting the new tax uh, on something uh, that we don't like because it's going to cost us more money. And that then, you know, stirs up a whole controversy of some sort. That isn't really a, a, a spiritual issue. And some people get involved in things that really aren't. And that draws, draws attention to themselves. So that's a, that's, a, that's a good point as well. The suffering. The suffering that Christ asks us to do is always the suffering of the healing of your soul. That's the suffering. Just like a, a good doctor or a good physical therapist will ask you to do some suffering if you've had a broken leg or some injury. But the suffering is always under the umbrella of a healing remedy, a, a treatment plan that's going to re- restore your, indi- your autonomy, your ability to function independently, and ultimately free from pain. That's the suffering that Christ is taking us through. The devil doesn't want us to see that. He wants us to narrow our view. He wants us to focus only on how bad it feels. He wants us to miss the perspective of the opportunities that we have to continue to, to, to make those healthy choices in, in harmony with Christ and God's government. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that, that you have not left us in the dark, that you have sent the light that lightens all men. Send your Holy Spirit now, as Christ representative on earth, to enlighten our minds of these truths. Help, help us see through the distortions that have fogged our, our thinkings for so long. We want to experience that regenerating process. Lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And as we come to that place where we feel that valley of the shadow of death, let us remember that you are with us and there's no reason for us to be afraid. Let our trust in you grow stronger, that we can come out free free of fear, free of self, just representing you in love on this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen.